Thanks, Steve. That's fantastic. And uh, But uh, thanks for being here this morning, you guys. Um, I just want to reiterate something Steve mentioned as well with life groups. Um, you, if you're newer here, you might not know this, but our desire is um, not to be a campus with life groups. We want to be a campus of life groups. And so our, our real ambition is that we believe that in order for you to get the, the full experience of what we hope to be as a church, what we hope to be as a campus, that includes life groups. So if you're a person that just comes on the weekends from time to time and you are not connected to a life group, you haven't checked one out yet, um, I, I would say you're only getting half of uh, what we have to offer as a church. We'd love for you to get connected um, to a life group as well. It's just a fantastic thing. And so uh, one of the groups that we looked at was the Miller Life Group. That's not the Miller Light Group, Miller Life Group, and uh, not to be confused. Uh, but they are incredible uh, leaders, awesome people, and they're just one of, of, uh, of the new groups that we have formed. They're ugly. I mean, Kevin's ugly, but, uh, you know, that's just him. But uh, that's because he's making fun of me, so i got to make fun of him back. But, uh, but they're awesome. I encourage you to get connected um, with them if you're looking for a place to get started. We're going to have seven new groups by the end of this spring, and so we're hoping that if you're not connected and you're looking for an easy opportunity to do that, uh, that that would be your easy opportunity to get connected um, to those groups. I, I love it when there's a new group. It's a lot like the first day of camp. No one knows anybody, and so because of that, you can develop relationships quickly. It's not like you're breaking into something where there's already uh, pre-established relationships. So we'd encourage you to do that um, if you get a chance to. It'd be awesome. Uh, today what we're doing, though, is we're actually uh, in the third part of a series that we've been calling Jesus in His Own Words. And so if you guys are just jumping in, if it's your first time here today, once again, just thanks for being here. We're glad you're able to, to join us as we do this series. But basically, if you are new, let me just kind of give you a synopsis of what we've been talking about. So for the past few weeks, we've really been sort of doing an investigation together. So this whole series has been a bit of an investigation. And this investigation has been prompted by um, attention that we said exists in our culture as it relates to Jesus. And so we, we, this is what we said. We said that we live in a unique time. And, and within our culture, 21st century America, we said that on one hand, uh, we live in what I like to call a Jesus-saturated culture. And, and what I mean by that is that in our culture, um, you would be hard-pressed to find someone that has never heard the name Jesus. Uh, Jesus is a very familiar name in our culture. And, and the name Jesus comes up in pretty much every major arena um, in our culture. So, for example, in politics, the name of Jesus comes up very often. It's a very controversial item uh, to be talked about in politics. In religion, obviously, with all of the different religions that are represented in our country, um, every major religion has a different opinion about who Jesus is, a different presentation about Jesus. And in pop culture, the name of Jesus is something um, that is very familiar. All of us have heard the name of Jesus. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone that wasn't acquainted with just the basic teachings of Christ, right? So we live in a Jesus-saturated culture. But at the same time, uh, we, we said this. We said we also live in a Jesus-confused culture. And there, there are so many different opinions, so many different presentations of Jesus, that for a person who's investigating Christ and asking, who is Jesus for real? It can be very, very hard to discern what the reality of Jesus actually is. And my guess is for many of you today uh, that you're here, you might be in that camp. You might be investigating Jesus. And you're not really sure what you believe about the whole thing. You're not sure you buy into all of it. And I'll be honest with you, if that's you, I can't blame you. Because there are so many different opinions about Jesus, it can be very, very hard to discern who the real Jesus is. So this series, like I said, is an investigation. And in this investigation, we're basically asking one question. Okay? We're not asking, what does the culture say about Jesus? Because if you ask that question, you're going to get a ton of different responses, a ton of different opinions and presentations. Nor are we asking, what does religion say about Jesus? Because once again, depending on where you go, you're going to get a bunch of different opinions, a bunch of different thoughts and considerations. What we are asking in this series is, what did Jesus say about Jesus? 
what did he have to say about himself? What are the claims that Christ made about himself? So each week what we've been doing then is we've been investigating a different claim that Jesus made about himself. And then at the end of our talk, we've been asking this question. We've been saying, okay, if that's true about Jesus, if that is true, if that's what he said, what does that mean about Jesus? And consequently, what are the implications for you and I then? If that's true about Jesus, what does that mean for us? And that's what we've been doing each week, looking at a different claim about Christ. So this week I want to continue in that, and I invite you to grab your Bibles and look at John 8 with me. That's where we're going to find our next claim uh, that we want to dig into today that Jesus said, Jesus in his own words. So uh, John chapter 8, by the way, that's going to be found on page 746 in those Bibles we have provided for you. So if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that is totally fine. You could just grab one of those Bibles that we have for you, get to page 746. Uh, if there's not enough around you, uh, you could just share with your neighbor. If you don't know your neighbor, it's a great way to get to know them. Nice and awkward, just saddle up next to each other and uh, get to John chapter 8. Also, I, I say this every week, I'll just say it again. If you are newer here and you don't own a Bible, you just outright don't own one, um, or if you don't have a newer translation of the Bible, would you do me a favor? Would you just take one of those, put your name in it, make it a gift from us to you? All right? We want you to have a Bible. We think it's really important um, that you own one for yourself so you can grab one and take one and make it yours. All right? So John chapter 8, and, uh, and here's what we're going to do. All right? We are going to read uh, verses 12 to 20 in John chapter 8, and then I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to cycle back around, and we're going to kind of break it down a little bit. All right, so before we do that, why don't we pray, ask God for his help this morning and uh, as we look at this passage, and then, uh, and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Jesus, I just want to say thank you for this morning. Thank you for each person who's here uh, uh, with us today. And Lord, it's such a privilege, it's such an honor to be able to, um, to sing together, uh, to be encouraged uh, in your word together. Father, we, we're so blessed that we get to do this without experiencing uh, persecution or anything like that. So thank you for that, Jesus. I pray that as we, um, as we get into the Bible today and we look at this claim that you made about yourself, uh, that you would illuminate to us what it means. Help us, Lord. Give us insight into, into what you said about yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so John chapter 8, let's start in verse 12. Once again, I'll read the whole thing, and we'll cycle back. So, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, Here you are, appearing as your own witness, and your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from and where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. And then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. All right, so interesting little passage there. In it, Jesus starts off by making a claim about himself in his own words. And this is what he says. He says, I am the light of the world, the light of the world. Now, that's a fascinating claim. My guess is if you kind of grew up in the church, you've heard that before, Jesus is the light of the world. But if you think about it, in our culture, if someone said that, it really wouldn't mean much. It'd be kind of weird to us, wouldn't it be? If someone said, I'm the light of the world, we'd be like, what are you talking about? What, do you, what does that even mean? Um, but I want you to understand that when Jesus said that about himself, 
that it carried an incredible amount of significance and meaning to the hearers uh, that were listening to Jesus when he spoke them. Uh, if you've been around here for a little while, you've probably heard of us say this before, but when you read the Bible, one of the major rules of thumb is that context determines meaning. So if you really want to understand what something means, you need to dig into the context and allow the context to help you discern what the meaning is. And so my hope is today that we can kind of dig a little bit into the content, the context, so that we can pull out the full meaning of what Jesus said when he said, I am the light of the world, right? So context helps us determine meaning. And in this little passage we looked at, I think there's two incredible hints that help us understand the significance of what Jesus is saying. Right? One of the hints, the first one you'll notice, is in verse 20. So look at verse 20 again. Notice what it says. Jesus spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. All right? So for whatever reason, the author wants us to know that Jesus said this claim about himself, I am the light of the world, in a particular place. And it clarifies. He said this while he was in the temple courts, in the, it was in the temple in Jerusalem. He said it in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. All right, so that's significant. We're going to find that that's very significant. And I want you to notice how significant it is. It says that he said it there, and then it says, yet, yet, no one seized him. John, John, John is telling us this. He's saying Jesus said this about himself, and he said it in a particular place at a particular time, and he said, and I am surprised no one choked Jesus. It's crazy what he said. So, so why is that important? What we're going to find out is that the location where Jesus put this is going to really help us understand the full, uh, the full meaning of what he meant when he said, I am the light of the world. That's the first hint. So we're going to dig into that a little bit today. Here's the second hint. The second hint is found in verse 12. So look at verse 12 again. It starts off, it says, when Jesus spoke again, which tells us what? That Jesus spoke before. Right? So really profound stuff here. Jesus spoke before. Basically, what we find out is that this conversation that Jesus is having in this passage is a continuation of a conversation that he was having previously. Well, previously where? Well, it's kind of fascinating. If you look just previous, verse 11, chapter 8, verse 11, and on up, you'll notice that in your Bibles, if you have your own Bibles, that whole passage is italicized. Anyone got that in their Bibles, that italicized John chapter 8? The reason that is, John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, is, is italicized. You might even, it might even tell you right there in your Bible, mine says it, that the earliest manuscripts don't have this portion in it. So chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, is the story of a woman who's caught in adultery, and the people gather around to stone her. Some of you might remember that story. Well, well, what we are told here, and what we see is that the earliest manuscripts that we have in the Greek, where we get our New Testament, they do not include this story. That tells us a couple things. It tells us one thing, that this may have happened. It's very possible that this story may have happened. But it does not belong here. Okay? It's very... It's very um, it's, 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 it's very possible that this was an addition that took place afterwards. And so the earliest Greek manuscripts do not include it. It does not hold up to the same literary scrutiny that the rest of the New Testament holds up to. All right? And so therefore, it shouldn't be there. That, that little passage there shouldn't be there. That's why it's italicized. Now, I know when I say that, some of you are like, see, that right there, that's my problem with the Bible. That's, that's, that's it. It's not trustworthy. It's not reliable. How, how can we actually trust the historicity of Scripture and all those kind of things? And, um, and I can't get too much into it because that's not what the sermon is about. But let me just tell you two quick things. Okay? The lit when you dig into it, the literary scrutiny and the process that, that, the, of canonization, that's what they call it uh, when, they, when they figure out what the, what the Bible is actually going to be the New Testament, is very rigorous. And you would be shocked at the integrity 
that the Bible has. But I would also say this, if you're a person that, that has a hard time with that, if you choke on that to some extent, I would encourage you to go to the Welcome Center. We've created for you something called the Deeper Dive. It's a paper that we've written that basically explains how do you get the Bible? What's the process that you go through to get that? And, and some of those considerations. So if that's something you want to dig deeper into, I encourage you to grab that after the service at the Welcome Center. Okay, but all that to say, in verse 12, when he says, Jesus spoke again to the people, it's referring back to chapter 7, all right? And what was happening in chapter 7? Well, let me just summarize for you. Chapter 7 basically tells us that there was something going on called the Feast of Tabernacles. Right? So in the Jewish religion, uh, the, the Jewish people were commanded to observe several feasts, and one of the feasts that they celebrated each year was something called the Feast of Tabernacles. And they were commanded, every Jewish person who lived outside of Jerusalem would all come together. They would all, have a, they would all um, join in a pilgrimage. They would assemble together in Jerusalem for this seven-day feast. And it was just awesome. I mean, it was, they had all kinds of ceremonies, and it was, they, would, they had an incredible party that they would have together. It was just this incredible thing where everyone would come together for seven days for this incredible festival in Jerusalem. In chapter 7, what we find out is that when all these Jewish people are coming together for this feast, that the major point of conversation, right, that the, that the kind of the, the thing that everyone was talking about, everyone was texting about, everyone was Facebooking about, everyone was, tw was tweeting about, was Jesus. He was the hot item. So in chapter 7, we see all these Jewish people coming together, and we see all these various opinions they have about Jesus. Everyone has heard of Jesus, right? Everyone's heard about his healing and his teaching, but now they're all arguing about who he actually is. We're like, what's up with this Jesus guy, man? What's his deal? And what we see in chapter 7 is we see a smorgasbord of just all of these different opinions about Christ. So let me just show you a few of them. You don't need to look in chapter 7, but I'll just highlight a couple. So in chapter 7, verse 1, we see the opinion of the Jewish leaders. It says that Jesus went to Galilee. He did not want to go to Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. So the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to do anything to silence him, to quiet him, to shut him up, anything it took, even to the point of killing him. Right? The Jesus' brothers were told in John chapter 7, verse 5, says that even his own brothers didn't believe in him. Right? Even his brothers, the guys he grew up with, they didn't believe his claims about um, himself. Which, of course, we know in chapter 7 that's true, but later on they changed their mind. Matter of fact, James was a brother of Jesus. He wrote the book of James and affirmed Jesus in a pretty strong way. But here in chapter 7, they didn't believe in him. Right? Check this out, the crowds. The crowds have an amazing diversity of opinions about Jesus. Uh, verses 12 and 13. It says, among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives people. But no one would say anything publicly for the fear of the leader. So all kinds of conscious people, some people are like, he's a pretty good guy. And other people are like, no, he's just trying to deceive you. It's a cult. It's all crazy. Uh, chapter 7, verse 15, the Jews there were amazed. And they said, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Some people thought Jesus was a good teacher. Man, what a great teacher. Where did he get this insight? Holy cow, this guy's awesome. Right? Some other opinions. Verse 20. Some people said, you're demon-possessed. People thought Jesus was demon-possessed because of the stuff he said. Verse 40 and 41. Some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. Others said he's the Messiah. So again, different opinions about Jesus. And here's the conclusion of the matter. Chapter 7, verse 43 to 44. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Right? So what do we see in chapter 7? Well, I'll tell you what we see. We see a Jesus-saturated culture. 
These are people, everyone had heard of Jesus, right? You would be hard-pressed to find someone that didn't hear about Jesus. But at the same time, it was a Jesus-confused culture. Everyone had a different opinion. And I mean, they were all over the spectrum. Some people wanted to kill Jesus. Some people thought he was demon-possessed. Some people didn't believe in him. Some people thought he was the Messiah. Some people thought that he was a prophet. Some people thought he was a good teacher. There's just this variance of opinion about Jesus that we see in John chapter um, 7. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at that, I think a lot of our culture. Our culture looks a lot like John chapter 7. There is a lot of tension around Jesus. There are so many opinions. And I believe every opinion we see here is really represented in our culture today. Right? So here's what I want you to understand. It's in this context, right? the Feast of Tabernacles, all these Jewish people are here. Everyone's arguing about who Jesus is. Everyone's got a different opinion about who Jesus is. Some people think he's the Messiah. Some people want to kill him. And everywhere in between, all this is happening. And it's in the midst of that that we finally get to John chapter 8, verse 12. And Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast to talk about himself. So everyone's already said what they think about Jesus. Now Jesus is going to say, now let me speak for myself and tell you who I am. And this is what he says. Look again at verse 12. Jesus spoke again and he said, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness again, but they will have the light of life. And we're told after Jesus said that, the people wanted to kill Jesus all the more because of what he said. And once again, context determines meaning. So let me just talk for a minute about why it was so important that Jesus said what he said where he was. So remember we said this was the Feast of Tabernacles, right? So the Feast of Tabernacles, basically all the Jews would come together in Jerusalem. And the reason they would do that, we're told, is to commemorate and to remember the way that God provided for the Jewish people um, back in the time of the Exodus, back in the time when they were in the wilderness. Some of you might remember this, but the Old Testament records for us a time when the Jewish people, the Israelites, were held in captivity by the Egyptians. So they were slaves to the Egyptians, and they cried out to God, said, God, save us from this slavery. So God sent Moses. You guys remember this scene? Moses comes, says, let my people go, and all that happens. And then finally, God releases the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity. And the Bible says for 40 years, the Israelites wander around in the desert. They wander around in the wilderness. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was basically something that was commanded by God for God's people to remember his provision in that 40 years in the wilderness. So there was things that happened in the wilderness that they would reenact during this, during this festival right, during this time, that would help them remember and be thankful for the way God provided for their ancestors in the wilderness. So for example, uh, when they lived in the wilderness back in the Old Testament, they didn't have any home. They didn't have a, uh, any, any solid place to stay, right? So they lived in tents. So in the Feast of Tabernacles, you know what they did for the whole week? They stayed in tents. Can you imagine how, how much fun that would have been if you were a kid? How cool that'd be. Y'all come together for Jerusalem. Everyone sets up a tent. And by the way, tabernacles, that word tabernacle is just a fancy word for tent. And that's all it is. So they would set up a tent, they'd sleep in the tent, and, and it was a way of them remembering that God provided for them when they were in the wilderness. Another thing they would do back in the wilderness in the Old Testament, it says that at one time Moses struck a rock and water came forth. God provided water for the people. And so what they would do during the Feast of Tabernacles is they would have a ceremony where they would pour water onto, onto the slab, and it was a way of remembering the way that God provided for them. Okay? Now another thing that happened during that time in the wilderness that God did for them is actually recorded for us in Exodus chapter 13. Let me just show this to you real quick. Exodus 13, verse 21. 
When they were in the wilderness, it says, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they might travel by day and by night. Okay, so we are told when the Israelites were in the wilderness that the way that God would lead them through the wilderness was this really crazy thing. It was this gigantic pillar of fire by cloud. So at nighttime, there was this pillar of fire, and it, would, and it would move. It would move around, and the people would follow that thing, and it led them through the wilderness all the way to the promised land, this big fire by night, right? And that, the Bible says, was a representation of the glory of God, the presence of God, the provision of God, and it was the guidance of God. That's what that pillar was, right? So during the Feast of Tabernacles, remember, they're doing things to remember how God had provided for them back in that time. So one of the things that they would do is in the temple... They would put these giant candelabras, these four gigantic candelabras. They were 75 feet tall, just gigantic. As a matter of fact, I'll show you a picture of it. This isn't a real picture, obviously. This is an artist rendition of it, right? But you can see here there's a giant candelabra in the temple court, right? That giant candelabra, again, would have been about 75 feet tall, and there would have been four of them. And on those four, at the top of, the, of each candelabra, there was four basins. And each of those four basins would be filled with oil, and every night during the Feast of Tabernacles, every night, they would, light, they would light those things up, all four of them, all 16 great lights. They would light it up 75 feet tall, and it would illuminate the sky, and it would illuminate the temple, it would illuminate all of Jerusalem, and it served as a reminder to the people of the way that God provided and guided the people in the Old Testament. And the Bible tells us that when they would do this, and history tells us as well, that when they would light these candelabra, that, um, that it was like, seriously, it was like a, just a crazy party. The orchestra would play, the DJ would come out, they'd spin some stuff, and everyone was just like, they would dance all night, all night. you got to remember, they didn't have electricity back then, so imagine how cool this must have been just to see all this. The whole sky's illuminated, and all of that was a representation, right, and a reminder of the way that God provided for the people. It was, it was, a, it was they called that the celebration of the lights. Now, Here's what I want you to understand. It's now the last day of the festival. The Bible tells us that Jesus was in the temple by the place where they took the offerings, which, by the way, was the exact place where these candelabra would have been, these four giant candles with these 75-foot candlesticks with these giant basins on them. And Jesus stands up. Everyone's talking about their opinion. I think Jesus is a teacher. I think he should die. I think, I think Jesus is a crook. I think Jesus is a good teacher. I think he's a prophet. All these different opinions are are just buzzing around about Jesus. So Jesus finally stands up on that last day, and he stands up in the temple court where all of these giant candelabras are, which are the representation of the Old Testament light that guided God's people, the presence and the provision of all God's people. And Jesus says to them, I am the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What's he saying here? Well, I'll tell you what he's saying. It would have been controversial because everyone that was there would have known exactly what he was talking about. They would have known exactly what Jesus was claiming about himself. And they would have been able to very quickly understand the implications. If Jesus is the light, then that means some pretty crazy things about Jesus. That, by the way, is why John lets us know it was so controversial when he said this. That they, he's like, I am surprised they did not kill him on the spot when he said that because it's so significant in the time and the place, the where and the when, when Jesus said that. 
So Jesus says he's the light of the world. That's him in his own words. So what are the implications of a statement like that? What are the implications that Jesus' hearers would have thought of? And what are the implications for you and I? Well, let me just give you a couple things. Let's just stretch out that metaphor a little bit and talk about light. The fact that Jesus is the light of the world means a couple things. Right? The first thing it means, if it's true, it means this. It means that light reveals. Right? Light reveals. And, and if you think back to the illustration of the light in the wilderness that guided, guided God's people, it told us that one of the major functions of light was that it illuminated the darkness. It allowed them to walk around in dark places. Light reveals. Very, very easy thing, obvious thing. Light reveals. Um, as a matter of fact, in, the, in this gospel, in the book of John, the imagery of light that's described about Jesus is used a total of 16 times. We are told Jesus is a light. Jesus is a light over 16 times um, in the Gospel of John. And I don't think it's by any coincidence that those candelabras that we're talking about, that each one of them had four lights on top of them. There's four of them. There was a total of 16 lamps. And so John is trying to point out to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. So just look at this real quick. In John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, this is what John says about Jesus again. He says, Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that they have done what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And so John is making the same point, that when the light comes, if Jesus is true, the light, that when the light comes into your life, it reveals things in your heart and it reveals things about God. When I was reading this, it was reminding me a little bit of, uh, some of you guys have heard me talk about in the past, you've heard me talk about this motorcycle trip I took with my roommate in college a while back, and I talk about it a lot, honestly, because it was such a crazy trip that I got more sermon illustrations out of that thing. I think I'm set for life. I just got so many sermon illustrations. But one of my favorite stories that happened on that trip, um, so basically, if you, if you haven't heard anything about it, um, my roommate and I in college, we, gra- we, we were roommates all through college, and when we graduated, neither of us had jobs or girlfriends or anything, and so we realized we, didn't, we were kind of in a unique place in life, that we had more freedom to do uh, whatever we wanted to than we ever probably would again. So we said, let's do something crazy. So we went and bought these really junky bikes, and, uh, and we decided to take a trip out west on these motorcycles. We made it as far as Montana before we realized that we probably would die if we kept going and came back home. And, uh, and really what we would do is we would just we'd, we'd ride, and whenever we wanted to stop, we'd stop, and we'd just find some obscure place, set up our tent, sleep on the side of the road, then pack it all up again and just keep going wherever we wanted to go. That was kind of the trip. It was crazy. It was so fun, but it was just crazy. So, so we went west. We actually went through Sturgis, South Dakota, during the major motorcycle rally, which was insane. And then eventually we kept going west, and we went to Yellowstone. Right? So we get into Yellowstone, and Yellowstone is just beautiful. Man, is it gorgeous. It's like a different planet if you've ever been there. It's the weirdest thing. There's like steaming, bubbling pools of stuff. I don't know. It smells bad. And it's just this really weird place. So anyway, we're going through Yellowstone, and we had it in our minds. We said, well, what we'll do is we'll go to Yellowstone, and, and obviously you can't just pull over on the side of the road and camp in Yellowstone. So we're like, well, we'll just find a campsite somewhere in Yellowstone, and we'll just camp. You know, we'll just find one and, and camp there. Well, if you guys know anything about Yellowstone, you know you can't do that, because you have to reserve a campsite there like two years in advance. So we didn't know that. So, so we would go to a campsite, and we'd be like, hey, do you guys have space for us? And they would just laugh at us. Like, are you kidding me? You've got to make a reservation two years in advance. So we'd go to the next campsite. We'd be like, hey, can we stay here? They'd be like, yeah, what's the name? We'd be like, uh, we don't have a reservation. They would just be like, get out of here. You know, we'd just leave. So, so we realized it was starting to get later. We were starting to get tired. And Yellowstone is a giant park. And we're like, man, we, are, we, are, we have to get out of here if we're going to actually go find a place to sleep. So 
We ended up going all the way through Yellowstone. It's getting later and later. Finally, it was like 3 o'clock in the morning. Finally, we got out of Yellowstone. We're in Idaho now. Uh, somewhere, I don't know, in Idaho. So we're in Idaho, no idea where we're at. We're both exhausted just driving around all day. And so I was like, we just got to find a place to sleep. So we went to this back road, went off this back road. We found this obscure little place. And I was like, this looks good. So we looked around, couldn't see anything. Set the tent up, put the motorcycles up, got in the, the tent and that kind of thing. Called it a night. I mean, I passed out so fast. I was so tired. So the next morning at about 6 o'clock, three hours later, um, I, I get woken up by this horn blaring. Someone just honking their horn like crazy. And, and I don't know if you guys have ever had this, but I, I was so tired. I wasn't quite sure if it was a dream or not. So I'm like, what is going on? So I looked at my roommate. And I was like, what is going on? And he's like, I don't know. I was like, I'll go check it out. So I get up. And now, mind you, the only thing I'm wearing right now is my shorts. I'm sleeping in my shorts. Okay. And, and so I, I go to get up. And I put on, I bought a pair of cowboy boots from a thrift store. So <laughs> I put on these cowboy boots that I had bought from a thrift store. So all I got out is these shorts and these cowboy boots. Just imagine this. But not too hard, lest you stumble. And so I put this stuff on. And I come out, and I'm like, I'm sure I have bedhead, and I'm just so tired. So I come out of my, I come out of the tent, like you know, like this. And I was just, I see this guy, and I see this guy in his truck, right? And he's in, in the bed of his truck. I assume is his son, but he's a big man. And there's these two guys in this truck, and they are just staring me down, just staring me down. So I come out, and I'm like, what do you guys want? What's what's the what's the problem? And he said, he looks at me, and he goes, son. He said, I'm going to give you about 10, 10 seconds to get your stuff out of here. And I was like, what's the deal? I don't see a, there no trespassing sign. I don't really see what's going on. And he said, you are in my driveway. <laughs> and and I, I'm not joking, you guys. I looked back, and, 100, and about 100 yards from where we were was this man's house. We were literally in the middle of his driveway. And I was, I was like, how did I not see that last night? And I was dark. I didn't see it. So I was immediately just like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, we packed our stuff up. I was like so embarrassed. We got our stuff on the motorcycles and got out of there. After I left, I was like, that was embarrassing, but it was funny. You know, it was really funny. And, uh, and, and, you know, I thought about it later. I don't know if you guys, this is kind of crazy. Think about this for a minute. What must it have been like from his vantage point? He wakes up in the morning, you know, he goes downstairs, gets his cup of, you know, bowl of cereal or whatever, sits down at the table, starts eating, and looks out, and there's a tent in the middle of his driveway, you know? It's crazy. So anyway, we got out of there. All that to, all that to say, what's very obvious, is that um, there are things that you can see when it's light that you cannot see when it is dark, right? And Jesus is making a simple point about himself here. He's saying, I am the light of the world. And when I enter into your life, I'm going to reveal things that you haven't seen before. Now listen, for some of you, you've been coming for this series, the Jesus in his own words, this investigation about Jesus. Maybe you're not even sure what you believe yet about the whole Jesus thing. You're still kind of investigating it and you're not sure. But my guess is that maybe one of the things that you found is that the more you press into Jesus, that the more in your life becomes illuminated. There's, there's more things that you begin to see in your heart. There's more things you begin to see in your character. There's more things that you begin to see habits in your lifestyle. And for some of us, when we see that, we see it and we become embarrassed. Because we're like, man, I'm start, I'm, I come to church now, and I, you know, I, I never really did that before. And now I start getting convicted about stuff. I start thinking about, about these characteristics that are in my life, about these, these living patterns that I have, about these addictions, these secret addictions that I have. And it seems like the, more, the closer I get to Jesus... And the more I learn about him, even if you haven't started embracing him and believing in him, the closer you get, 
the more the more you, you almost it's like more is revealed but at the same time there's like you're like I am more messed up than I thought I was and and I didn't realize I was as much of a mess as I actually am and let me just tell you if that's happening to you the more you pursue Christ that that is happening to you that is normal and the reason that's normal is because Jesus is the light and light reveals right light light shows things that are hidden um, in the darkness and it has a way of doing that and that's a good thing when that happens and I should probably just tell you this that when you experience that the heart of God by the way is not that you're embarrassed that's not his heart the heart of God is that you're transformed and he's not showing you those things because he's disappointed in you or he's angry with you or because he just wants to strike you dead the reason he's showing those things to you is because he wants to give you his grace and transform you to be his child that's why he's doing that but the more you press into Jesus and the more you learn about Jesus, the more you will be exposed. And the result is usually one of embarrassment. You're like, oh my gosh, I am way more of a mess than I thought I was. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just what the light does. Jesus says, I'm the light. And part of the, one of the functions of light is that it reveals. The other function, and probably the one that's more prevalent in this passage is this one, is that light guides light guides. Remember the illustration that Jesus is using here. He's using the illustration back in the time of Exodus. There's a pillar of fire that would lead and guide God's people, and the, that pillar would move, right? Look what Jesus says again in verse 12. Jesus spoke again to the people, and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, isn't that interesting? He says, whoever follows me, whoever follows the light. It's fascinating, because usually when you talk about light, you don't usually follow light. You usually stand under light. I don't know how it all works. But Jesus says, you have to follow me. Remember, the illustration he's using is that light back in the Old Testament that would move. It would, it would lead God's people every day, step by step, but where God wanted to lead them, all the way to his promises. Jesus says in the same way, he says, I am that light. I am that light. And if you follow me, if you follow me, I will lead you to the promises of God. I will lead you to the places that God wants to lead you. This is so significant because what Jesus is saying is so significant. He's not saying, I will show you the light. It's not what he says. See, other religious gurus will say, I will show you the light. If you, if you listen to my teaching, you can achieve enlightenment. If you come after me, I will reveal to you what the light is. But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I will show you the light. Jesus says, I am the light. In other words, Jesus is saying enlightenment is in a status to be reached. Light is a person to be followed. And if you want to make sense of this life, the only way that you can make sense of this life is by following Jesus. That's what he's saying here. If Jesus is truly the light of the world, that means that the only way for us to truly make sense of life is to follow him. And if you guys think about it, all of us are really walking around in darkness, aren't we? And think about it. This whole human experience that we're all part of is really just a bunch of darkness for us. Think about it. We're all born into this life. None of us really knows how we got here. I mean, I mean we know the immediate of how we got here, but we don't know like, like where, the, where human species came from. We don't know that. We don't understand the origins of this planet, this universe. We go outside, we look at the stars, we look at the universe that's around us. We're like, I don't know what that, what is that all, what's that there for? We don't understand it. We all die one day. None of us knows what happens after we die. Not empirically. We know that our bodies break down and decompose and go back into the dirt. We know that. We don't know what happens to our spirit. We have theories. We have speculations. But if you really think about it, man, this life, we are all just kind of walking around in the darkness, trying to figure it out. And none of us have it figured out. We're all just kind of stumbling around in the darkness. And the Bible actually affirms that position. 
says, yeah, you're all stumbling in the darkness. But Jesus comes and says, I am the light of life. I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, I will lead you to the things that God wants for you. If you, if you trust me, if you put your faith in me and follow me, I will lead you to those things. And what that means for us is this. It means that life will not make sense unless you're following Jesus. That's the only way to make sense of life. For some of you today, you're, you might be facing a serious decision in your life right now. A serious decision. It might be a relationship decision. It might be a job decision. It might be a housing decision. I don't know what it is, but maybe for you, you're facing something and you're torn because there, there's what you want and then there's all the other voices that are around you. And so your parents want one thing, your spouse wants one thing, your kids want one thing, your boss wants one thing, and you have all these opinions that are coming at you, and you're trying to de decipher, who should I follow? Who should I listen to? Right? Well, the Bible tells us that the only way you can actually make sense in this life is to trust and follow Jesus and his opinions for your life. Listen to me. Some of you right now, you're facing a decision, and it's between what you want and what Jesus wants. And, and right now, you're facing a decision like that. Maybe in a relationship that you're in, it's between what you want, you know what you want, but you also know what God wants, and you know what Jesus wants, and you are torn between those two things. Maybe for you it's in your marriage, right? You know what you want, but you also know what, what, what Jesus says about these things, and you're torn between those two things. Maybe it's about, I don't know, whatever it is, but for some of you, you're facing something like that right now, right? And I'm just going to tell you, if this is true, if it is true that Jesus is the light of the world, if that's actually true about Jesus, then I can promise you this, if that's true, that if you choose what you want over what Jesus wants, if you decide to make that, de that decision, then you are choosing to continue to stumble around in darkness. And life will not make sense to you. It will continue to be confusing. You continue to fumble around and not be able to make sense of things. However, if you're facing that decision, and regardless of what you desire, if you choose what Jesus wants, Trust him and have faith in him. He will lead you to the things that God desires for you. Jesus is the light of life. He says, follow me. And if you follow me, you will find what your purposes are. Some people in our culture will tell you, you know what, if you want to make a good decision, you just need to trust your heart. Just listen to your heart. We hear it all the time. We hear it in songs. Listen to your heart. Trust your heart. Follow your heart. You know what the Bible says about that? In Jeremiah chapter 17, it says, the heart is deceitful and wicked beyond all. It cannot be trusted. The Bible says, don't trust your heart. You know what the Bible says? Trust Jesus. Follow him. He's stronger than your heart. He's more trustworthy than your heart. That's why the Bible tells us to put your trust in God, and he will make your path straight. Commit your way to him, and he will put your, your, your path straight. Jesus says he's the light of the world. What does that mean? It means he reveals. It means he shows us things in our lives that need to change. It means he reveals to us who the Father is. It means that he guides us. He leads us to the promises of God. He shows us. He doesn't show us the light. He is the light. He teaches us about him. Jesus, in his own words, he said, I am the light of the world. Now, let me just close real quick. The band's going to come up here in a second. And um, as they come up, let me just close by addressing just two quick audiences. And then I'll pray and we'll be finished. I promise. Okay. So, um, so audience number one. For those of you who follow Jesus, for those of us who are Christians, I know that's not everybody. But for those of us who follow Christ, I think that this should do a couple things in our heart, motivate us in two ways. The first thing is, if Jesus is the light of the world, I think one of the ways it should motivate us is it should motivate us to be people who live with integrity, right? Jesus is the light of the world. That means that everything will be revealed in his time. The Bible says in so many places that that's the case, that one day everything that's hidden will be brought into light. And so for you and I who follow Christ, that should motivate us to live with integrity, 
to live the same in the light as we do in the darkness. Let me just be real abrupt for a second. For some of you this morning, you are hiding things in the darkness. There, there, are, there are things that you're hiding from your spouse. There are things that you're hiding from your friends. There's things that you're hiding from your groups. And you're pushing those things aside, thinking that they'll never be seen. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that means that he is the light of the world. And that means that he reveals. And in his time, everything that's in the darkness will be brought into the light. And so we should be motivated to live with complete integrity. The other thing it means for those of us who follow Jesus is this. It means that following Jesus is not a one-time decision. It's not like I decided to follow Christ several years ago, made a decision, not going to hell, and now I can just live my life however I want to. It's not what that means. Following Jesus is a daily event. He is the light that we follow. And so that means that every day that we are always living in the tension of trying to discern where is he leading me, where is he guiding me, in every decision and every avenue. And so for those of us who follow Christ, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, are there areas in my life that I am holding back, that I am not allowing his leadership in my life? As we sing and worship and pray, I'd encourage you to pray about that and ask God about that. Secondly, second audience, if you're a person that, that's not sure what you believe about Jesus, maybe you're an atheist, maybe you're an agnostic, maybe you thought you were a Christian, but as we've continued talking about Jesus, you're not sure anymore. Maybe you didn't think you were a Christian, but as we continue talking about Jesus, you're not sure anymore. If that's you in any of those particular situations, let me just say something real quick about that. Um, when I was a kid, as a teenager, my dad would wake me up before I went to school, in high school, and I was that kid that was impossible to get up. I just... I just hated getting up in the morning. And so my dad did something that worked every time. He'd wake me up every morning, and it worked every time. All he would do is he'd come in, and he'd flick on the lights. That's it. And he'd just say, get up, Tone. He called me Tone, by the way. So that's why that makes sense. So he'd flick on the light. He'd say, get up, Tone. And, and here's what would happen. Inevitably, I would try to fight it, but I couldn't. And it used to make me so mad because the light, it was so, it was so rousing, and it was so awakening that I just I couldn't. I, just, I was like, I would get mad at him, but at the same time, I couldn't help but I'd get up, right? Now listen, for some of you, as we've been talking about this, um, for you, maybe for you, the, the emotion that's happened as we've been talking about Jesus is that you, you, maybe for you, you're angry. You're just angry. And you're angry at, I don't know what, but you're like, how, how can you say that Jesus is the only way to really know life? How can you say that? It's so narrow-minded, man. That's so closed off. How can you say something like that? And for some of you, as we talk about Jesus like this, it just gets you angry. If that's the case, listen, I actually think that's a good sign. Because the light is rousing. And it has an effect. If it has that effect on you, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think you might actually be dealing with the real Jesus, if that's the case. And I would encourage you, if that's you, not to lean away and push away, but instead to lean in. Because it is very possible that God is revealing himself to you. For some of you, you're scared. You're like, I don't know what to do. I, I, I know that if this is true, it demands all my life. If it's not true, then I don't know what to do. Man, I'm not sure. And you're scared. If that's the case, again, I think that's a good sign because the light is rousing. For some of you, you're ready to embrace it wholeheartedly. And if that's the case, I think that's a good sign because the light demands a response. I think the only thing that I fear is the worst response is one of indifference. Because if you feel indifferent, that means that you're not interacting with the light. Light has an effect. Light is rousing. And so wherever you're at, my encouragement to you is that maybe you would be open to the things that God is trying to reveal to you. And in this time, the band's going to come up right now, and as they do, they're going to lead us in a final song. And in this song they're going to they're play for us, I encourage you not to stand up. You don't even have to sing along. You can if you want to, but you don't have to. But I would encourage you just to listen to the lyrics. For some of you, observe them. 
Just observe the lyrics. For some of you, though, you need to internalize them. Make them a prayer from your heart to God's heart. You want to embrace Jesus. All right, let's pray together. Jesus, I want to say thank you that you are the light of the world. Father, it's uh, what an amazing claim that you made about yourself here in Scripture. Lord, we see that if you're the light of the world, that means that you, that you have the ability to reveal things to us, God, that we cannot see in the darkened state. Lord, I know that there's, in some, when I look at my heart, there's patterns of sinful behavior. Lord, I am more messed up than I think I am. I know I am. And the closer I get to you, I see more and more. And Father, I ask you that as a result of that, that as the light intersects with the darkness in our hearts, every single one of us, Jesus, as that happens, that our um, response would not be to recoil, that our response wouldn't be to push away, but instead would be to embrace, because your goal is an embarrassment, Jesus. Your goal is transformation. Your goal is to reveal yourself to us so that you can transform us, Jesus. And I pray that rather than leaning away from that, that we would lean into that. God, I pray for the person right now who's facing a decision, a tough decision between what you want and what they want. God, if, if you really are the light of life and following you is where we find light, I pray that you would help them to make a decision of trust, believing that you're guiding them to the right conclusions. Help them to submit to that, Jesus, this morning. Lord, and for those of us who maybe are investigating you, we're not sure what we think, but I pray that you would just maybe for the first time ever pray to you and ask you to help us. Help us understand what it means to follow you. And you are the light of life. So Jesus, we love you. We're going to lift these things up to you in Christ's name.